Well, I do welcome you to Church of the Good Shepherd if you're visiting with us, if you are a guest. We're glad that you're here. Uh, the Baileys are still gone. They're, they're coming back. I think they'll be back tomorrow. Pastor Bailey, the senior pastor, and uh, I just spoke with Joseph, their son, yesterday on the phone. He was standing on this, this precipice in the Rocky Mountains. That's the only place he could get uh, cell phone coverage from the town that was down below. So he's standing on this precipice talking and assured me that uh, no one had fallen off of any cliffs or uh, had a heart attack as they were um, hiking. Um, concerns that I had. So thankfully, so far, they're all fine and uh, should be driving back um, today or tomorrow, which, of course, can be just as dangerous depending on who's driving. So keep praying for them that God will bring them back safely. Uh, you did all see the dirt over here, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping and assuming. All right. Thank God for that. Dirt is beautiful. Um, when it's piled up into mounds and scraped off of places. So uh, thank God for the, for the moving of dirt. This is the furthest that we've ever been in, uh, in the building process over these last, what, seven years? Something like that. So thank God for that. Well, turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. I just want to read a few verses from Colossians chapter 3. I'm not going to park here. We're going to go someplace else in, the, in a moment. But I want to start in Colossians 3. And uh, to get us going this morning, Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. The Apostle Paul writes this, he says, If then you have been raised with Christ, jumping into the middle of the book of Colossians, he's said these things already, now he's going to bring the implications of them. If then you've been raised with Christ, and you have, if you're a Christian, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. I don't think that any of us live as if that is real. I would, I would say that none of us live as if that is real. We live as if the only thing that is real, the only things that are real are the things that we can see, the things that we can touch, the things that we can taste, the things that we can hear, the things that we can handle. We live as if that is the only reality there is. We are chronically people who live by sight and not by faith. And what I want to do this morning is to try to pull back the corner, peel back the corner of the veil so that we can catch a little vision, catch a little glimpse of what is really there, what is is really there, what Paul is talking about in Colossians 3. I want us to see what Paul says in Colossians 3 is very real, that, that, that there are things that are above. I want us to see a little glimpse of those things that are above so that we can seek them as he commands us to, so that we can set our minds on them. I want us to see that the reality of having our lives hidden with Christ in God, I want us to get a taste of what it will mean to appear with Christ in glory when He appears in glory. Because we must obey these commands in in Colossians 3. He commands us to seek, to set our minds on, to seek after the things that are above. And we have to obey these commands. And the vitality 
the strength, the health, the, the power of our lives as Christians absolutely depends on it. If you let your eye glance through the rest of Colossians 3, you'll see things that he commands us to do. The ability to kill your sexual immorality and impurity and passion and lust and covetousness depends on seeking the things that are above and setting your minds on the things that are above. The ability to kill your anger and your wrath and your malice and your slander and your, and your obscene talk depends on seeing the things that are above. The ability to stop lying depends on it. The ability to live as an upright, compassionate, kind, humble, meek, patient, forgiving person depends on seeing the things that are above. The ability to love depends on it. The ability to be a submissive wife, as God commands wives to be, depends on it. The ability for us husbands to be loving and self-sacrificing husbands, as God commands us to be, depends on it. The ability for you children to... Obey your parents and everything depends on you seeing the things that are above and seeking the things that are above. That's what, that's what Paul says in Colossians 3. And, and all of these very practical callings and duties depend on us seeking and setting our minds on the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. But I'm convinced, I'm convinced that a major reason... that we so often fail in the practical callings, the practical commands, the practical duties that God gives us, that we fail in our attempts to obey God, the reasons that we fail to, to grow in our godliness, is that we always skip over this first part. We skip over the part that has to do with seeking God. We, we skip over the part that has to do with seeking the things that are above, with setting our hearts and our minds on God. We skip over that part. We're impatient with that. We, we want to get past that and get on to the good stuff. We want to get on to the stuff that has to do with us. Because then we can do something that will make us feel good about ourselves because after all, we've done something. We're impatient with this stuff. And so we never even begin to seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Give me something practical. Tell me what to do. Uh, tell me what I'm able to do. Tell me that I am able to do something. Don't bother me with all this mystical unseen reality stuff. Don't bother me with this glory, this pie in the sky by and by stuff. Don't bother me with that stuff that I can't see. I'm a man who, who lives in this world. Give me something I can wrap my hands around. Give me something I can sink my teeth into, into. Give me something I can put my shoulder against. Give me something I can touch and taste and... and what? And see? And so we insist on living by sight. We cut ourselves off from the one thing that we most desperately need. The one thing that we most desperately need is a vision of the glory and the magnificence and the beauty and the awe-inspiring majesty of Jesus Christ as He is, highly exalted at the right hand of the King of Heaven. That's what we need the most. That's where everything begins, and we always skip that. You men, you men want to know how to kill your addiction to pornography? Look at Jesus Christ. And with that vision burning in your eyes and in your heart and in your mind, 
Put to death what is earthly in you. Kill sexual immorality. Kill impurity. Kill passion. Kill lust. Kill covetousness, which is idolatry. That's what Paul says. You women, you want to know how to stop being consumed with pettiness and anger and bitterness? Then look at Jesus Christ. And with that reality of His glory blazing in your eyes, Paul says, put them all away. Put away anger. Put away wrath. Put away malice. Put away slander. That is what Paul is saying in in Colossians 3. It starts with seeing the glory and the beauty and the magnificence of Jesus Christ as He really is, not in some kind of version that we have made up. That's what Paul is saying. And he's not talking about some simplistic formula. He's not giving us some secret for instant spiritual success. If you do this and that and the other thing, then automatically you'll, you'll burst into growth. That's not what he's saying. But he is telling us where we absolutely must start if we're going to have any hope at all in living in obedience to God, we must start by seeing the reality of the glory of Jesus Christ. Only that will empower us to kill our sin and to live in obedience to Him. So that's what I want to do this morning. I want us to get a glimpse of this glory of Jesus Christ, and I want to do it by looking at Revelation chapter 19. So please turn with me back to the book of Revelation chapter 19. The fact that we've been reading through the book of Revelation in our morning services, uh, in our services for our scripture lessons, uh, has had this, uh, this book kind of steeping in me. Uh, so we're going to look again at it. Revelation chapter 19. And I want to read the whole chapter. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you His servants, you who fear Him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at His feet to worship Him. But He said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you. And your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus, worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, 
with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. What the book of Revelation does is it takes the Bible, takes the whole Bible, and puts it in visual terms. What it does is it shows us what the rest of the Bible tells us. And Paul tells us in Colossians 3, we read a minute ago, Paul tells us in Colossians 3 that Christ is above where God is. It tells us that Jesus Christ will appear in glory. It tells us that everyone who trusts Jesus will appear with him in glory. But John does something different. John shows us. He shows us what it looks like. Verse 11. Look at this again. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a purple, in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Can you see that? Can you see it? You had better see it because you're commanded to. You see what he says in verse 11? Then I saw heaven opened and what's he say? What's your translation say? Then I saw heaven open and Behold, it's a command. Behold, look, see it. A white horse. I saw heaven open. Look at this. Look. A white horse. Behold it. Can you see him? Can you see him in his glory and in his power? Can you see him in his wrath and his majesty? Can you see him in his sovereign authority? Just just look at him. He's not what you'd expect to see. You know, he's not walking along the beach. He's not walking along the beach in his little sandals, you know. He's not lingering in the garden alone when the dew is still on the roses. No, he's riding this horse. He's riding a battle stallion. 
He's not, uh, he's not some smooth, self-serving politician. He, he is faithful and true. He's not tolerant. He judges and makes war. He's not meek and mild here, is he? His eyes are a flame of fire. He will not submit to anyone's agenda. On his head are many crowns. He's not clothed in, in that, that thing that you see him clothed in all the time, in your head. He's not clothed in a nice white dress with a, with a blue sash, you know, silky blue sash. His battle robe is dipped in blood. It's not his blood. It's the blood of his enemies. He's not leading a, a ragtag little, little group of timid misfits who are always kind of bumbling around. The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, are following him on white horses. He's not um, whispering little niceties and spiritual platitudes telling you how to, to have your best life now. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He's not soft and easygoing. He rules with a rod of iron. He is not open-minded and jolly. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And he will not be trifled with or used as a genie in a bottle. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. Do you see him? Or have you manufactured for yourself a nice, respectable, clean, docile, housebroken little Jesus who serves you at your beck and call? No wonder, no wonder, we are overwhelmed with lust and anger and selfishness and pettiness. You know why it is? It's because the Jesus that we see is a timid, flaccid, spineless hippie. No wonder. No wonder we're stuck in our sin. So many of you can't even begin to imagine how seeing Jesus can give you strength and fortitude and courage and power to deal with your sin at all. Of course you can't even imagine the connection. Because your vision of Jesus is basically Mr. Rogers on Valium. What's that going to do for you? Where's the power in that? Where's the overwhelming awe in that? Where's the motivation in that? Where's the hope in that? So what is your Jesus like? What is your Jesus like? The one that you have in your head. Does he even remotely resemble the real Jesus that John saw? Does your Jesus have enemies? Does he? Does your Jesus wear a robe dipped in blood? Does your, does your Jesus trample the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty? Or is he more like a cheerleader? More like a, a, uh, a slick, polished, motivational speaker? More like... More like your own personal trainer. You know, your own personal um, Richard Simmons. I was going to say Gene Simmons, and that would be completely wrong. Just as wrong as... Is that what your Jesus is like? I said that for you, Brandon. That's good. Yeah. 
Is he your king or is he your butler? Think about it. Now, I know what some of you are thinking right now. Where's the encouragement in that? Right? So what am I supposed to do with that? I thought Jesus was my friend. I thought he was meek and, whole, and, and lowly at heart. I thought he was filled with kindness and compassion and tenderheartedness and patience. I thought he was the bridegroom, the, the kind, tender, strong. Yeah, but kind, you know, tender bridegroom who, who takes care of the bride. So what's with all of that? You know, what? he is all of that. And much more than you could even possibly begin to think. He is all of that. But you'll never understand, you'll never appreciate, you'll never really benefit from the wonders of His mercy and His kindness and His tenderness and His compassion. None of that will ever really begin to make sense to you at all until you also come to grips with what John saw in Revelation 19. With who John saw in Revelation 19. Do you understand what I'm saying? (laughs) You divorce those two things and the, the good part becomes nothing. What use is it? All of the meekness and the kindness and the tender-hearted compassion that you know Jesus has, and He does, and it's more than you even think. It's more than you ever dared to hope. All of the goodness, all of the kindness, all of the compassion will be completely watered down and ultimately useless to you if you don't also embrace the might and the wrath and the fury and the power and the majesty that you see in Revelation 19. If Jesus has no enemies, then He makes a terrible friend. you understand how that works? What kind of friend is He if He has no enemies? What is the value of His friendship if He stands against no one? What is the value of His care for you if ultimately He has no concern to stand against those who are set on destroying your soul? What good is his friendship if he has no enemies? If Jesus has no enemies, he makes a powerless Savior. Listen to these words, though, from Luke 1. Luke chapter 1, verses 68 75. Just listen to them. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. He's talking about Jesus as He spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. God has sent His Son to save us from our enemies, to show the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember His holy covenant, the oath that He swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. If Jesus has no enemies, then He makes a powerless Savior. 1 Corinthians 15, For He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. You want Jesus to have enemies. If you want Him to be your Savior, He'd better have enemies. And if Jesus has no enemies, then He makes a terrible king. How can a good and just king have no enemies, especially in this world. But he does have enemies. Listen to these words from Psalm 21. If you have your Bible, look at this with me. Psalm 21, 8 through 13. I want to show you several passages here real quick. Psalm 21, verse 8. 
Your right hand speaking to God, ultimately speaking to Jesus Christ. Your right hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in His wrath and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed, for you will put them to flight. You will aim at their faces with your bows. That's Jesus. That's the one riding on this horse. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. Look at Psalm 45. We began with it this morning. Jeff preached from it last Sunday. Here we are again. Psalm 45, look at verse 2. This is talking about Jesus Christ. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips, therefore God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one. In your splendor and majesty, in your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. This is Jesus Christ. Not strolling along the beach with his sandals and his nice white dress. This is Jesus, the real one. Do you know what, what passage from the Old Testament is, is the most often quoted passage from the Old Testament in the New Testament? Does anyone know, David? Ha, you're right, Psalm 110. I knew you'd know. Look at Psalm 110. Look at this. The most often quoted text from the Old Testament in the New Testament by the writers of the New Testament, the apostles and the gospel writers, is Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, God the Father says to my Lord, Jesus Christ the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of His wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, He will lift up His head. When the New Testament writers think of Jesus, what do they think of? They think, there's a king. There's a king coming. There's a king coming who will rule over his enemies with a rod of iron who will make all of his enemies a footstool for his feet who will come out victorious who will have wrath on the day of judgment. That is Jesus. But is it your Jesus? Is your Jesus nothing more than a guru? Nothing more than a a nice rabbi? Nothing more than a nice little man who said nice little things to nice little people? Is that your Jesus? Or is he God? Is he a nice little teacher? Or is he God? Is he up there with Plato and Buddha and Confucius? I read this on a website yesterday of a church in town. All right? 
Jesus Christ like Buddha, you know, like Confucius, like um, Muhammad. Uh, I read a website yesterday that um, I'm not... (laughs) It's um, a church that claims to be an evangelical church. And it said Jesus... God was in Jesus in an unprecedented way. Is that your, your Jesus? God is in him more than he's ever been in anyone else. He could be in you too. Or is he King of Kings and Lord of Lords? One more psalm. Listen to these words. You don't have to turn there. Just listen to Psalm 68. Verses 1 through 3. God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. But the righteous, he says, the righteous shall be glad. They shall exult before God. They shall be jubilant with joy. So there are two groups here. They're the enemies of Jesus and the friends of Jesus. The enemies of Jesus will be scattered. They'll run. He'll drive them away. They'll melt like wax. They'll disappear. He will kill them. But the friends of Jesus will be glad. They will exult. They will be thrilled before Him. They will be jubilant with joy. Which brings us back to Revelation 19. Did you notice as we were reading through Revelation 19, it says that God will put on two feasts one day. Did you notice that? Two feasts. Two suppers. Two dinners. The first one is in verse 6. You're going to be in one or the other. You're going to be invited to one or the other. Definitely. There's no way out. Verse 6 is one of them. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. Verse 9, And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those, happy are those, who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's the one feast. There will be a feast for the wedding of the Lamb, a feast thrown to celebrate the final victory of this king, a feast rejoicing and celebrating, a feast of joy and exultation and triumph. Everyone who attends that feast will be blessed forever. But there's another feast. Look at verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God. To eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. In the one, Jesus invites his bride, the church, to come and enjoy a feast. In the other, Jesus declares that his enemies will be the feast. And all of us will be present at one or the other. And our culture has sold us a bill of goods. It has told us that Jesus is a tolerant, easygoing, flower child peacenik. It has told us that Jesus accepts people just as they are and has no intentions at all to change anyone. It has told us that the greatest expression of Jesus' love is to never judge anyone. And all of it is a lie. 
and it will kill you. And it will absolutely keep you from obeying Him. Jesus will kill people with a sword that comes out of His mouth. That's the real Jesus. And that's the real Jesus who at the same time offers you terms of peace. He offers you terms of peace. You don't have to be uh, at the supper of God, the one where you'll be the main course. You can be at the wedding supper of the Lamb. He offers you terms of peace, and the terms of peace are signed in His own blood. So will you accept these terms of peace? Will you submit to Him? Will you find mercy? Will you find Him full of pardon for all of your sins? Will you find the joy of His favor, the glories of knowing Him and being loved by Him by by having Him as your friend? Will you find the joys of that? Or will you be content to continue on as His enemy? Which supper are you going to? And if you are a Christian, if you have bowed your knee to Him, if you have submitted to His absolute authority over you, if you have believed what He has said, if you've trusted what He has done, does the version of Jesus that you accept and embrace match the one from, from Revelation 19? Is the vision of Jesus that you have in your head powerful enough to enable you to do what Paul tells you to do, commands you to do in Colossians 3? Is the vision of Jesus that you have in your head powerful enough to empower and motivate you to kill your sin? That's my question for you. Is it powerful enough for you kids? You kids who will be going to school this week, right? Some of you are anyway. Is this vision that you have of Jesus Christ powerful enough to sustain you, to to strengthen you, to... Um, to uphold you, to empower you to face a new school year with unbelieving teachers, unbelieving friends, unbelieving kids, giving you pressure? Is your vision of Jesus Christ big enough for you to enable you to stand against all of that? A nice little Jesus won't be big enough to do that for you. Is the vision of Jesus that you have in your head powerful enough for you to see Him To see Him. To see Him there standing, sitting, riding on His horse with you. Paul says in Colossians 1, when when He appears, we will appear with Him. We'll appear with Him in glory. Did you see yourself in Revelation 19 if you're a Christian? The armies of heaven following Him on horses, covered, clothed, in, in fine linen, that's you. Is your vision of all of that strong enough, pure enough, right enough, powerful enough to, to enable you to turn away from the pornography on the screen? Is it? Is your vision of the glory and the power and the majesty of Jesus Christ powerful enough to make you hold your tongue? To make you humble? To make you 
self-sacrificing, to make you pure, to make you simple, to make you content? Or does there always have to be something else? What kind of Jesus do you have in your head? He will not be trifled with. He will not endure the idolatry of our hearts. Jesus Christ is everything that Revelation 19 says He is. Which makes His offer of mercy all the more spectacular. Because He will strike people dead. But He offers you mercy. Not reluctant mercy, but genuine, glad-hearted, free mercy where He will enter into loving relationship with you. Will you have Him? Will you? Or will you ignore Him again? Let's pray together.